0: Almighty God, we ask you now to bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would grant us grace and strength to learn of you, and that you would give me the grace that I need to preach your word in the spirit of the living God. In Christ's precious name, amen. Well, as we concluded that chapter in Matthew 13... We read and we read and just heard that Christ did not do many mighty works in the village, the town of Nazareth, because of their great unbelief. See, there's some type of reciprocal relationship between our faith, our belief, and God acting in history. Can God overpower our unbelief? Can God move without our faith? Certainly. He doesn't need us for anything. He didn't need to ever create us. He doesn't have to do anything except exist. He's just God. But he has ordained it in such a way that our faith within the veil of the covenant has an important part to play. And when Christ can't do or will not do or refuses to do, mighty works in his own hometown because of their unbelief that should send us a clear message that faith is a necessary prerequisite for God moving in our lives. As I said, can God surprise us and move and encourage our faith by moving when we don't believe? Yes, he can. But God also encourages us when we believe and then he does move. And that traditionally is the way it works. God says something, we believe it, and then he does it, and then we thank him for it. That's the general logical order of it. And when we come to our prayer lives, we run into a large concrete wall, don't we? A large concrete wave. It's not really a wall, it's a wave of liquid concrete that comes at us in solid form and continues to hit us as we go to God's throne of grace. As we go to God's throne of grace, and we walk away unsatisfied. We go to God's throne of grace, and we walk away wondering, is he going to do what I asked him? And we look back on the travesties of our life, and we say, oh, maybe God doesn't answer prayer. I've asked him for this. I've asked him for that. That it never transpired. I never got what I asked for. Well, the reason why God never says yes or sometimes doesn't say yes to our prayers is often a great mystery. Now, I've often told you and I will continue to tell you that God always answers your prayers. No is a very definitive answer, is it not? Child asks mother, no. can I have some cookies? No. That's a very clear request, a very clear answer. Why? Because dinner's in an hour. Can I have a cookie afterwards? No. Why? Because you don't need cookies today. It's a very definitive answer. So is maybe, and so is wait, and so is yes. But when we discuss our prayer life and we say, God has answered my prayer, we usually mean he said yes. Or if we say, God withheld his answer, we usually mean he said no. And that causes us to weaken in our faith. And in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus is commanding us to pray, and to keep praying, and to keep praying, and to keep praying. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and To him who knocks, it will be opened. Well, that's a pretty clear command. It doesn't take a biblical scholar or a biblical rocket scientist to figure out exactly what Jesus is commanding us to do. He's telling us to pray to God and to keep praying to God and to keep asking and seeking and finding and knocking and having the door opened. Now, ask, seek, and knock, they're not three separate things. They're just Jesus' way of uh, piling on terms so that we get the message. Asking God, seeking God, and knocking on the door to God's heart or God's throne of grace, they're all the same thing. We're going to God and acknowledging that we need something from Him. We're going to God and acknowledging that we are dependent upon Him for something. We are going to God and asking Him and acknowledging to God that we are dependent upon Him for everything. Think about it. Every breath you take has been ordained by God. And the day that each of us stops breathing, that has been ordained by God. So if we are dependent upon God for the very oxygen that sustains us, how much more then are we dependent upon God for Food, clothing, shelter, material prosperity, peace, joy, salvation. We need to realize right away we are dependent upon God for everything. Are you five foot eleven? God ordained it. Are you five foot two? God ordained that. It all flows out of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. We are dependent upon him. And when all of us here in this congregation look at our lives, we should be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Even, no matter how hard our life has been, God has allowed us to live in a free society, blessed us with a level of prosperity that is unknown throughout history and is unknown even today in the vast majority of the world. so why don't we believe? Do you realize, and I'm not saying this to shame you, but if Christians right now in the third world, they're praying, they are begging God to give their hungry children a portion of the food that all of us will eat today. Do you realize that If God were to take the life He has given you, which none of us deserve, if He took all the blessings God has given you, healthy children, um, smart children, a free school to send your children to, a caring teacher, a, a nice, warm church to worship in, people who love them, and people who will look after them. If God gave those things to the vast majority of third world Christians... They would never stop jumping for joy. So then why don't we believe that God loves us when He has already shown us how much He loves us? And beyond all of that, none of of that matters as long as God answers our prayer, please, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. If God answers no to every one of your prayers that you ever ask, but He answers yes to your confession of sin, then that is all that matters. And if God says yes to all of your requests for Cadillacs, and He says no to your confession of sin, what will it matter? If you live in a 50-room mansion, and what does Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer is obvious. He gains nothing. If anything, it heaps upon the person an added layer of accountability. The rich person who fails to trust Christ will have no excuse. I say, well, God, you didn't show me anything of yourself, really. Where do you think you got that house from? Where do you think you got that career from? You think you just happened upon it? You think you actually deserve that? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. These are guarantees. Now let us just think for a moment about that scary epitaph to the town of Nazareth. We need to believe that Jesus is telling us the truth here. So, first and foremost, do you believe that Christ is telling you the truth? He's telling you to ask, to seek, and to knock, and to continue doing so because we will receive what we ask for. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. These are emphatic statements. These are guarantees. You know people in your life that you don't trust, don't you? People who have consistently let you down over 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You know who I'm talking about. I don't know you individuals. But the type is pretty common. They say they're going to do X, Y, and Z, and they wind up doing A, B, and C, or minus A, B, and C. They've proven themselves untrustworthy. Maybe you're an employer and you know people who say, I'll be there at you know such and such a time and they never show up. Or maybe you've worked for somebody who says, I will pay you on Friday and they don't. That's a lousy feeling, isn't it? And when they continue to do so, it, it doesn't alleviate the pain. And then we all know people, hopefully, that we know that we can depend on. If they say they're going to do something, they do it. And if they can't, if they are providentially hindered, they feel bad about it and they apologize. Well, What is God like? Is he dependable? What is God like? Is he trustworthy? What is God like? Does he love you enough for he will provide for you? Do you believe that? I hope you do. If not, that's the first place we need to start. And do you understand that unbelief is a sin? Unbelief is the sin with a capital S. Nobody goes to hell because they're murderers. you understand that? They go to hell because they're unrepentant murderers and thieves and sorcerers and gossips. And uh, think of any other sin you want. Adulterers, adulteresses, whatever. Worshippers of foreign gods is because they don't repent and they don't believe the gospel. That's the only unforgivable crime. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit at the end of the day comes down to not believing who Christ is. Because the Pharisees said, oh, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. They're saying, you're not who you say you are. That's the ultimate sin. Jesus isn't who he says he is. The gospel is not true. That is all that matters. Do you get the gospel right? Do you believe who he is and what he has done? Without that, everything is lost. Everything is lost. So the first thing we need to ask is, have we trusted him? Are we in the family of faith? Are we in covenant with God? Do we believe? Do I believe? This isn't a call for overly morbid self-introspection, where you doubt your salvation for 40 or 50 years. That's a ridiculously crazy proposition. God wants us to be assured of our salvation. But we're assured of our salvation not because of our belief, but in who we believe in. In other words, we acknowledge that we need him, and we acknowledge that he's stronger than us, and we acknowledge that he will drag us into his kingdom, even if we're kicking and screaming. That no matter what we do, he will forgive us. Will he discipline us? Yes, he will. Will he forgive us? Yes, he will, but we need to ask. Have you asked God for forgiveness? Did that confession of sin we all used some minutes ago, was that real, or were you just saying the words so that everybody around you wouldn't look at you oddly? Now, it's pretty crazy to come to church and fake it. I think that that is one of the most ridiculous things that anybody could ever want to do. I mean, really. I can understand rationally, even though I don't approve of it, someone faking it in order to sell a product and earn some money. Even though I don't approve of it, you can rationally say, okay, he gilded the lily a bit there because, well, the commission was $5,000, not excusing it, but you can, you can say, well, okay, got something out of it. If someone comes to church and fakes it, what on earth are they hoping to actually get out of the deal? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why would you want to come someplace that's voluntary? right? It's voluntary, and you fake it in front of a bunch of people and and you don't and they don't they don't care and and you don't care. Why would you bother? What is the benefit in that? I've never really understood it, Neither does God. God despises it. Christ tells the church in Laodicea after his Ascension. I, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but right now you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. That's little, literal translation. You can go to Revelation 3. Hot or cold, God does not like lukewarm. It's like broccoli. Broccoli's good cold, it's good hot. It's not tasty lukewarm. Not, not many things are very tasty lukewarm to be just the right temperature. Lukewarm is never the good temperature. Now I know some, someone's going to come up and correct me afterwards saying, oh, you know, Pastor, this does taste good lukewarm. It's fine. We all have our uh, quirks. I, I actually have been, I don't drink a lot of pop, but when I do, believe it or not, I actually like it when it's flat. I don't know why. It's weird, but I like flat, so- I like flat soda pop. I don't know why. It tastes better to me than fresh stuff. I know you're all looking at me as if I've tossed my cap, but there it is. That doesn't matter. What does Jesus continue to do? Well, he points out to us that if we're evil, if we're sinners, and we do these good things for our children, then how much more than will our Heavenly Father? Or what man is there among you, who if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So he's making a comparison from the lesser to the greater. And basically he's saying, look, you're sinners and you take care of your children. You're sinners and you provide for your children. Your heavenly Father happens to be God. Your heavenly Father happens to be perfect. Your heavenly Father has not a Speck of evil or darkness in him, how much more then will he take care of his covenantal children? Think of us, all of us here. We look after our kids if we have children. I know all of you to a greater or lesser degree. You even care about other people's children. Operation Christmas Child. Those aren't our kids. We don't know them by name, but we know that they have nothing. So we'll give them something. Well, if we are willing to do that, and we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of God's grace, then how much more, brothers and sisters, will God give you the things that you need? He gave you his son. Can he give you anything more? And do you realize that the basis of Him him giving you anything is the work of His Son? And please notice that the requests are being given to the Heavenly Father. The Father is the giver of all good things. The Father is the one who is in charge of everything. But now we have to ask ourselves, okay, that's fine, I understand. So what should I ask for? What should I seek? Any particular door I should knock on? I think there are a few things that we can, without any hesitation, go to God for and not only expect the yes, expect is about as good as you can get. The root of all of our problems, I've created this gigantic list. He came up with like 15, 16 things that we could go to God for and he'd say yes to. And I realized, okay, I could probably take all of them and give them Arabic numerals and put them under this one big one. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is what we really need to go to God for and ask him for. God, please make me a man of God. Father, please make me a woman of God, a person of faith. And this goes for you children as well. The boy or girl that you are today will be the man or woman you grow up to be. What's the proverb say? The child is father to the man. If you're a kind boy, you will most likely grow up to be a kind man. If you're a young girl who engages in prayer you most likely will grow up into a woman who engages in prayer. Can God correct you in mid-course? Yes, he can. And I can assure you, it's not as pleasant as being corrected at the beginning of the journey. Trying to change horses in midstream is, I've never done it, but if everybody says it's unpleasant, I'm going to believe them. Do you want to be spiritually mature? Do you want to have spiritual knowledge? Do you want to have spiritual wisdom? Because you see, if you have those things, then you will be asking for the proper things. If you have spiritual maturity, you will be seeking the right things. And if you have spiritual maturity, you will know which door to wrap your fist on. If you don't have spiritual maturity, then you're going to wander around asking for all kinds of crazy things, Seeking the wrong things and knocking on the wrong doors. You see, spiritual maturity is the key to the whole thing. I remember when I was a social worker in Michigan in the early 90s. Basketball is a big thing in the inner cities. And in the early 90s in Michigan, there was a lot of very good basketball going on. University of Michigan had their five freshmen that went to the final four. The Detroit Pistons were on top of the world, across the lake. Michael Jordan was three hours away, and nobody has ever come close to being him, and I really don't think anybody is ever going to. Michigan State had a good team. And I found one young man who, who, who was a Christian, he was in trouble, but he's a Christian. He'd grown up in the church. His grandfather was actually a pastor. And he told me, uh, I said, what were you doing in there? I said, I couldn't help it. You were making some odd noises. Now, he's a Pentecostal. He's speaking in tongues. I says, oh, okay. Well, you know, What were you praying for? I was praying that the Pistons would beat the Bulls. Okay. You know, I gently pointed out to him, you know, you have, you have much Bigger fish on your plate to fry than wondering if Isaiah Thomas is going to beat Michael Jordan. You know, we, need to, we need to work on your rehab and uh, getting a job and paying your restitution and maybe getting you off suspension and getting you home for a weekend pass. But if, if, if the Pistons are that important to you, and I asked him, I said, listen, do you think that there, his father was Assemblies of God preacher? I said, do you think that there's some Assembly of God kid in Chicago is praying that the Bulls will beat the Pistons? And he said, hmm, "Probably." I said, "So who's God rooting for?" I said, "Is God a Bulls fan or a Pistons fan?" And He said, "Hmm." I said, well, "Doesn't matter if there's more Bulls fans or more Pistons fans." I told him, "I said, brother, I'm a New York Knicks fan. There's a lot of people in New York, New Jersey who like the Knicks, and you know what? We're not winning all that much." There's more of us. You can combine Detroit and Chicago, and there's more people in New York, and we're not winning. I said, brother, you you need to pray about something a little bit more serious than that. He was a young man, and and we have all done those things. I prayed for my favorite sports teams, even as an adult, and it really is rather silly when you think about it. It's a sports game. It's not that important. Now, I expect a little less from a eight, 17, 18-year-old young man who is, who is in jail than someone who is free and has been in church for 30 or 40, 50 years. I expect a different level of maturity from uh, looking around pretty much everybody that's in this room. So please don't pray for the stealers. You can pray that nobody gets hurt. That's perfectly fine. To pray for victory, for one millionaire team to beat another, it's it's rather kind of silly, isn't it? Maybe we should pray for a proper perspective on professional sports in our country. Maybe it would be a good prayer that we say, you know, Lord, maybe it would be nice, possibly, if uh, policemen and grammar school teachers were thought of not only as good as professional athletes, but better. Because they actually perform a more important function. What's more important? Teaching a child to read or running around on a basketball court? What's more important in the big scheme of things? What's more important? Running into a burning building and pulling children out of a burning building? Or running around on a football field? What is more important? None of us would say running around on the field. Do you pray for teachers? do you? Not just your children's teachers, but teachers in general. What about the ministry of the church? In serious. Do you, do you pray for Middlesex Presbyterian? Do you pray for me? Do you pray for the elders and deacons, deaconates? That we would hold our office with dignity? That we would fulfill our ordination vows? Deaconates are not ordained, but the rest of us you realize, your deacons, your elders, and myself, that we're going to be held accountable on Judgment Day for those vows we take down here? Well, the parents who come down here and have their children baptized and take membership vows and then disappear, you pray for them? Because they've taken a vow and now they've backed off of it. God takes vows very, very, very seriously. Better not, say something And not do it than to say, yes, I will support the work and ministry of the church. I promise to preserve the peace and purity of the church. Better to not say those things than to say them and then not do them. What about lost souls? Do you care about the lost? Are you praying for them? Do you have loved ones who do not know the Lord? Do you have enemies who do not know the Lord? Do you have loved ones, family members, or enemies who want nothing at all to do with Christ and his cross? Are you praying for them? Are you begging God to have mercy upon them? Are you begging God that he would give you the opportunity to say anything, humanly speaking, that would prick their conscience and bring them to God? Many of us, we need to ask, do we pray hardly at all, except, Lord, thank you for this food, bless it to us. Lord, thank you for this day, bless it. Lord, please protect me on this journey. And those are important prayers, but we should be praying more, and we should be praying deeper prayers. And as we grow in the Christian life, as we get older in the Christian life, our prayer life should grow deeper and richer and more mature. I'm going to leave you with this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The writer, whoever he was, lambasted that congregation. Those people at that time could not have been Christians for more than 25 or 30 years, which isn't a great deal of time. No more than 25 or 30 years old, at most, being Christian. And he said, I'm perplexed by you. Because by this time, you should be teachers. And yet I need to keep reminding you of the elementary things of the faith. I want to feed you meat, but I can't because all you can digest is milk. He said that to people who are first-generation Christians. All of us have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian history. This church itself is more than 200 years old. Some of us have been members of this particular church for far more than 25 or 30 years. And if the author of that epistle could lambast them for wanting milk, well then, let's argue lesser to greater. Do you think that we should be more mature, all of us, than we are? So I implore you to go home and ask God to make you spiritually mature. I guarantee you, you can ask that. And you will receive it. The reception may be a little bit rough. Because maturity comes at a cost. But he will say yes to that. He may not say yes to a new job. But he will say yes to spiritual maturity. Would you pray with me? Laura? Oh God, we ask that. That you would help us to all become the spiritually mature men, women, and children that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.